Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio, where we learn about visual information sharing, why it's so important, what it is, and what happens when it's in place. Hi. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, about how to embed our intelligence, the intelligence of your operational system, into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, visual solutions, visual systems. This is your intelligence, and we install it. We install the details of our current operational system, our current level of excellence in the enterprise into the physical landscape of work, the physical work environment, even if you're not quite as excellent as you wish you would be or as you know you will be. And it doesn't matter whether you work in a factory, a healthcare setting, office, military depot, open pit mine, all workplaces are information-based and visuality is a strategy for embedding information so that we can pull it to us. And why do we do it? We do it for the stunning bottom line results, improvements in safety, quality, cost, productivity, on-time delivery, you name it, all your KPIs. And we do it for the splendid cultural transformation. We get, as a result of installing the language of visuality, a spirited, engaged, and aligned workforce on all levels, not just operators, but supervisors, people in marketing, people in purchasing, people in planning, your boardroom, your executives. And we do it also so we enjoy ourselves at work, so that we flow. Because where information is embedded and we can pull it to us, this creates the opportunity to flow, for our work to flow, for material to flow, information to flow, people to flow. We enjoy ourselves at work. And that's why we do it. Welcome. Welcome. This week's show, uh, this week's show, we are going to be continuing our discussion about the infrastructure. If you remember George from Anderson, a plant in Anderson, and Marianne from Michigan got in touch over the week and a few other people and said, hey, tell us how we can set up for this thing you call doorway number one for operator-led visuality, what do we need to put in place as managers? We understand a little bit better what operators are going to do. What's our job? What's our role? What's our contribution? And so we're taking a pause in our march through the 10 doorways, and we're going to look at this question of installing an improvement infrastructure. It's a very specific sub-protocol or sub-technology. It's a part of the methodology of conversion. We talked last week about infrastructure as an interconnected set of elements that enable or support a larger outcome, a larger structure. It's a framework, the same kind of framework (laughs) that we see as infrastructure in buildings where the I-beams are not visible, but boy, are they important. Where the plumbing is not known to us in detail, but boy, is it important, along with the electrical grid and the Wi-Fi system. Okay, so it's behind the scenes, behind the walls. It What makes the event that is that the building is for, the purpose of the building, happen? That framework, that set of interconnected elements that we call, we call the infrastructure. Okay? So we ask ourselves, what is the framework of mechanisms, elements that must be in place before a company can successfully launch and support, sustain systematic change? In this case, a visual conversion. In this case, doorway number one. You need that for lean as well. You need that for any improvement strategy. 
But over the years, we have developed a pretty specific list of what we call the three outcomes and the seven startup requirements that we put into place beforehand. It's an understanding, it's a behavioral uh, behavioral framework, it's protocols, it puts the infrastructure in place. And if you remember last week, we went over the three outcomes. Remember, achieve a showcase, achieve bottom line results, and adopt an attitude of learning. These three outcomes, we're looking for the establishment of a work environment that is self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving, where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual devices. This is our definition of a visual workplace. And we're looking for a showcase of that. We're looking for a department that demonstrates that as our first outcome. That is our goal. And that helps us organize and pull together the resources so we know what we want is visual functionality that will inform and will inspire. So people will say, hey, I want one like that. Oh, now I get it. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Good. They see the what for. They see the what's in it for me because it's performing in a new and exciting way. The second outcome Trackable bottom line results means you actually see a shift, a a discernible shift in your KPIs. Trackable bottom line results. And the third outcome, we want people. It's a cultural outcome. We want us. We want people. We want others and us to stay open, to adopt an attitude of learning, and to stay that way as we learn and we grow and we grow and we learn. We start the journey in that way, and we want to continue open, tolerant, interested, curious, emphasis on discovery, emphasis on learning. So those are the three outcomes. And on the seven implementation requirements, the the behind-the-scenes elements, we talked about your vision place, which is where we're going to first see the, the visual showcase, but in another location, a place that we travel to, maybe it's McDonald's, maybe it is the post office or the library, maybe it's another factory, but we identify a vision place. That's the first implementation tool. So we have the vision before us. Vision comes first, then transformation. Second element or the second of the seven requirements is a systematic methodology. Choose one. Implement one. Make sure you have a system of change, a step-by-step protocol that will give you the outcome that the showcase or the vision place demonstrates. The third requirement is excellent training materials. This isn't done off of the hip. This isn't shoot first, aim later. This, these are training materials that are designed to teach, inspire, inform, support, clarify. And if you're teaching visuality, then you have hundreds, hundreds of great visual solutions that demonstrate the principles and the concepts so that people can understand them, can learn merely by looking. Mm -hmm. That's the third startup requirement. The fourth is on-site leadership. This is where we closed the show last time, which in our methodology is called the three-legged stool, sometimes a four-legged stool. The seat of the stool is your targeted areas, and in a moment we'll talk about how you target them, how you choose where to begin. We'll be using a tool called the laminated map for focus, a specific tool in the seven startup requirements. But this three-legged or four-legged stool are four legs or three legs to support the areas where you that you have targeted for conversion. That's the seat of the stool. One leg is the management champion. This is a quick summary. Who is the advocate and who also signs off on the resources and expects the change, watches carefully, and make sure and make sure that there's a payback on the investment. Second leg is the coordinator, the visual workplace coordinator or the work that makes sense coordinator or doorway one coordinator. You can use this for all the doorways. It's the person who's in charge of the logistical and administrative details for coordinating activities within and between departments, between maintenance and the targeted areas, 
for collecting improvement time, which we'll also be talking about in a moment. The coordinator is the project manager and chooses as assistants or as a support team, something that I call the lead team. It means a group of people handpicked by the coordinator to help them, to help him or her do the job that needs to be done. And then the third leg of the stool is the steering team, which is made up of area associates, value-add associates, who are really pretty gung-ho about the process. Most of the time, it's because they're gung-ho. They volunteer for the steering team. It's volunteers. There's no coercion, motivation, or recruiting. We see who volunteers, which is a diagnostic all by itself. We'll do several shows on the steering team and give you the telling detail. I hope this is interesting to you. And the steering team is there to keep their thumb on the pulse of the change. And if they see trouble, and they sometimes do, much earlier than management does, they have a direct line to go to the champion, to go to the coordinator and say, oops, guys, the implementation is in trouble. Here's why. This is what we see. And they go with recommendations. They don't just go as spoilers to complain, but they say, this is what we observe. And we have these three ideas, these three opportunities that will help, we think, turn things around. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful mechanism. Those are the three basic legs. And then if you do your own training, which we encourage you to, which we really have been focused on for the last 10 or 12 years to make our materials available so that you can learn to train them directly. You can create a training group of your own. You can be self-sufficient. You can continue. You can reinforce. You can refresh. Then the fourth leg of the stool is your trainers. It becomes a four-legged stool. But you have um, perhaps what's comparable is your OPEX office, your Office of Operational Excellence. It means that manpower and women power have been designated to take care of the implementation, to take care of the investment, to take care of the ins and outs of cultural transformation, and to make sure the methodology pays off in those people ways and those financial ways that all good methodologies do. That's the purpose of this group, this team of committed, committed and forward-thinking, positive-thinking, but strong-minded individuals who come together for a common purpose, and they create this outcome. You can't do it by yourself. You may want to designate a single person to train it and coach it and project manage it, and that person's going to burn out really soon, or is not going to be able to take on important outcomes that are larger than simply getting through, for example, a training course presenting. What we're interested in is deployment, implementation, success. Success, success, as Lockheed Martin used to say. Success, success. That's the way that that's why they kept the success in there. Success visual. Success, success. <laughs> I don't know if you got the difference in the language, but it was very, very important to them. We worked with them when they were challenging for the Joint Strike Fighter down there in Fort Worth, Texas. Man, was that great fun. Great learning, great everything. Cowboys. Yeah. Lockheed Martin. An indelible and beautiful memory. So those are the first four, the ones we just named. Vision place, systematic methodology, great training materials, and your on-site leadership, three-legged stool, or something comparable. The fifth startup requirement is called the improve, your improvement time policy. Is it more important than the others? No, but it is of equal importance. Each of these tools in their way are perfectly balanced to be important enough that if you don't do it, there's going to be some kind of a wrinkle in the sheet. The improvement time policy has to do with making a differentiation between production time and improvement time. 
any company that is committed to the excellence journey is doing two things at once, running full tilt on production and running pretty darn fast to get improvement going and growing in the area. If the company doesn't establish an official improvement time policy, very little improvement will ever happen in the enterprise. It's very reasonable why not. In the battle between production and improvement for time, production always wins out. Operations always win out. This is as it should be. The company is in the business of delivering products, delivering services, and its production or its operations create those products, those services. Without an established improvement time policy, there is the distinct danger that needed improvement, aimed goal improvement, will never happen. Improvement will certainly never turn into a habit if we're constantly struggling to find time. If we're depending on those few individuals who see the vision burning brightly before them and find a way to eke out small pockets of time to make magic happen. You know these people. They are your star performers. And in their determination to find a way, these shining heroes do themselves and the rest of us some bit of harm because when they succeed in making improvement happen in the absence of a clearly defined improvement time policy, they unintentionally send the message that separate time is not needed. It is the wise manager, the wise executive who sees through this double think and takes steps to establish an an official written (laughs) signed improvement time policy nonetheless. In my experience, the lack of an established improvement time policy is the greatest, if not the, is one of the greatest, if not the most important and uh, difficult corporate roadblock to making improvement a way of life in the enterprise. It's not done intentionally to let improvement fail because of the lack of time. I think it's mostly done because people don't realize that a separate policy will make the difference. A separate policy, when it is written and signed, is the product of the ranking side executive who says, this time we will put the resource of time We will invest this resource into the vision that we want, into the goals that we say are important to us. And even though we will have to learn how to do it, my policy, which I've just written and published with my signature, is declaring that we will seek and we will find a new way. Mm -hmm. Instead of making do, instead of squeezing it in, instead of asking people to do overtime or sacrifice their home life in order to do the work that is inspiring anyway of change in the enterprise, and they'll burn out. Improvement time is separate from operation time, and it is clocked as such. Let's just talk about doorway number one. I'm going to focus on doorway number one because this is the place where it really becomes mission critical. Improvement time is not associated with meetings. It's not associated with general house cleaning or any other kinds of gatherings that are routine. The policy is focused on the improvement changes that you say you want. In the case of doorway number one, operator, operator-led visuality. Certainly, if you've got great training materials, people are going to be stimulated to think about their motion, to think about visual solutions, to find the information deficits, and to make a vibrant, a vibrant pull system in the visual language. This is something that people, that operators are given to, and they, of course, love it because it helps them with their performance. It helps them be heroes at work. It helps them do their work and do it very, very well. It takes the struggle out. So the motivation is there. And you don't want that motivation to be um, translated into eking out time, finding the time somehow, coming in a little bit earlier, 
coming in on the weekends, which has been done. Because people want to improve. They feel this great urgency and this lift. So we want to value that and honor it and make this policy. And you pilot the policy. And you tweak it. Until it works. So you write this policy that says, we are about this. We are going to launch on this journey. And in order to help us make sure that there is enough time, we are going to give X amount of time per person per week in the targeted areas. We'll use the laminated map in the next um, startup requirement, the laminated map, to help us find out what those targeted areas are, to have a rationale and logic behind that. We are going to give X amount of time to each person in the targeted areas, and that time is to be utilized for improvement. You know what's great about setting up the policy? Is that it's official that this is your intention, and then you watch it fail. Because it will to begin with. People don't know how to separate production from improvement time. So you're going to have to learn. Remember our third outcome, adopt an attitude of learning. Let's figure out how to do this. And it's very interesting with an improvement time. What we do is we talk about manufacturing here, but you can easily make the corollary to healthcare or to office uh, procedures, the office environment. We let the supervisor who is in charge of meeting the goals, the hour by hour, be in charge of the faucet, the faucet through which time is running, and turn that faucet open or close based on their estimation of, do we have time this day, this week for improvement? And what we want the executive to do is watch and ask for regular weekly reports on the utilization of improvement time on the deployment of his or her policy. Just show me the numbers. I just want to see, were we able to use any of this time? And in an organization that is growing and learning, he, the executive, she, the executive, will see jeepers, We haven't used any improvement time in the last three weeks, not a single hour. Well, the supervisors are in charge of the faucet. Wow, that's a really good diagnostic, says the clever executive who signed the policy. That's a diagnostic telling me that probably the supervisors are having a little trouble. Let me meet with them. And so you get the zero numbers. The time isn't being utilized. And you say to the supervisors, hey, you know, I know this is a challenge, and I know you have your reasons, so I'm not going to call you on the carpet and ask you why haven't you used the time, but I am going to ask you this. I'm going to go out and get a little uh, Pepsi, my favorite drink. I'm going to go get a Pepsi, and what I want to do when I come back is I want to see if one of you would volunteer to just make an extra special effort to find one not less than one, not more than three hours of improvement time next week for your areas. I'm just looking for one volunteer, someone who will, you know, kind of move the earth (laughs) and the moon and see if you can find that time because it is a policy. And I'd be very interested in the barriers that are standing in your way. And I'd be very interested in if you are able to succeed despite those barriers. Okay, so I'm going out for my Pepsi, and when I come back, I just want one volunteer. See if someone amongst you would be so brave and courageous as to test out this policy so that we can see see it working. And the executive goes out, comes back five or six, ten minutes later, and says, well, Anybody want to volunteer? And sure as anything, there won't be one volunteer. There'll be three of them, and the decision will be whether or not to go with one or to go with three. And all you're asking for is an experiment. You say, yes, okay, good. Okay. Uh, I was going to say Marianne or George because they're on my mind, but I'll say instead Undine. I'll say Undine. Undine and Boone. Undine, 
your hand is up first. Will you take this on? And will you see if you can free up some time? And let's stay in touch. I'm interested. And yes, Boone, okay, if you want to do it as well, that would be great. But two is enough. And you just let it go at two. And then you watch what happens. And you will see people who are trying to find a way to make your policy viable, your official written proven time policy. And can you see how this brings in to the change process your supervisors in a positive way, not a punishing way, in a way that doesn't demand of them, but says, let's see if we can find a way. You go first, and I'm here to help. That's you as the site manager. And they find a way. Or if they don't, you know you've got a real problem, even bigger than you originally thought, and then you tackle that. But the problem of the faucet is not a problem that is related to the operators, nor is it related to the supervisors. Not yet. Right now, it's you who needs to get your improvement time policy to grab so you can begin the experiment. Hmm? And you start with one supervisor. And we have these little charts you can put up. Supervisor will put up something and will say, we've got three hours. You remember our boss said that there's improvement time. Well, I managed to find three hours this week that you can sign up for, first come, first serve. Just sign up for the time, for your improvement time, so you can start inventing your visual devices and you can start building them and working on them. And, and it goes, three, three hours for that week. You've, break, you've broken the mold. You've cracked the code on improvement time. Because remember, the policy says X number, uh, X amount of time per person per week, and that's usually an hour. And if you've got 16 people in your area, that's 16 hours. That's a lot of time, a lot of improvement time. So if you get three, that's progress and going in the right direction, and you're happy with it. This improvement time policy. Use it to begin with as a diagnostic for on the systems level, on the level of your management function. Supervisors, can they free the time? Well, you know, what you'll find out is that they are afraid you don't mean it. They don't want to be the first to go because that limb doesn't look thick enough to hold me. It looks very shaky. I'm not going to go first. This is just a, a trap because time is so precious. And you go through the diagnostic on that level. and You get your supervisors to release the time, to post the time, three hours this week. And you know what is the next barrier that they run up against? No operator will sign up for the time. They'll come back and they said, boss, I did it. I offered three hours. I put up the chart. All people had to do was sign up. Nobody signed up. Ah, another diagnostic. You're learning about the behavior. You're learning about your culture. You're learning that people are afraid or they don't believe you. They don't take it seriously, or maybe they don't think it's important, whatever it is. Even though you have this great training, people are still not just reluctant, but in a state of refusal. I'm not going to take time away from production. All they've been telling me for the last seven years is that I've got to pump this stuff out. And all of a sudden, they say they don't mean it anymore. I'm not going to do it. So we used the utilization or the non-utilization of time as a diagnostic, to understand the bumps and the quirks of our culture, of what we have created and what we have inherited, our starting point. And then we work that through. And the supervisor will do the same thing that was modeled by his side executive. He'll say, hey, look, guys, I put up three hours. I'm looking for four people to use that three hours. There's 16 of you. Four people, just sign up and use the time. I need some brave people so I can show you that I really mean it. There are many elements in improvement time that have to be worked out locally. For example, if you have a locked line, in other words, 
everyone needs to be working in order for the work content to be made, to be achieved, then you're not going to be able to pull three people out or four. You'll have to use improvement time some other way. And I'll say a few ways that it can be used. So I'm going to mention some other parts of the the, the seven startup requirements that we haven't gone over yet in great depth or enough depth. But they all factor in. This is a kind of synergistic framework. So they all work together, uh, elements that are interacting with each other. But you want to track first individual improvement time. You want to see how the individual uses time. And you'll have in your policy, if the machine goes down, if you're short of material, if there is an unexpected um, pause in the operations, please feel free to use your improvement time. The improvement time finds its focus in another tool that we'll be discussing probably next week called the hit list. It's another focusing tool. So if people do have time, they know exactly what to work on. Their hit list is there. They're clear about it. The supplies are there, which is another element of making this go. So they're prepared if there's some unexpected time that's been liberated to use it, individual time. But you'll also have what I call a blitz. You probably call it a blitz as well, but it's a visual blitz. And it's only two or three hours long. It's not the whole day. It's not five days. And as many people as possible will participate, macro Blitz, if the whole department shuts down, a mini blitz, if just a few people take time off, or a micro blitz, if only one person gets improvement time in. But you're going to keep the momentum going, largely or in small detail. You're going to keep this utilization of improvement time going. You're going to track it. This is your investment. Time that precious commodity. And the policy is the first step. The written improvement time policy published and signed is the intent. And then it has to be operationalized, tested, tracked. We collect the raw data. But first we have to get people to note it, to mark it down. And I myself, when I do this, when I run an implementation, I say, you know what, Your, your improvement time needs to be tracked by you. We're not going to fill it out, come around and interview you and say, how much time did you use? You just track it yourself. If there's not a whole lot of trust in the culture, then you'll give everybody an individual form to fill out and kind of drop it on the supervisor's desk or the coordinator's desk when nobody's looking, if the culture is very distrusting. (laughs) Or if there's more strength, then you can just tack it up and let people sign up for it. And you usually have a little uh, a square. If you're giving an hour, then each of the, f- it's divided into four, and each little quadrant is 15 minutes, and people just fill it out. 15-minute quadrants is a, it's a pretty good measure if people are finding time. If a machine is down, material is late. The premise is eye-driven. The premise is people are interested. The premise is people want to learn to speak the visual language. This is true when we implement, we here at Visual Thinking, Inc. We have never had problems in motivation. First of all, if people don't want to do it, we don't punish them or make them um, the object of our displeasure. We just let it go. We treat people as adults. We went over this in the building blocks when we talked about I-driven. Our premise is people do want to contribute. In fact, it's built in. It's built into our, it's kind of hardwired into us. Another show we'll do another time. (laughs) Name of that show will be The Mind is a Pattern-Seeking Mechanism. The mind is very, very favorable to, to change. You just have to be clever with the personality part of the mind. So your written improvement time policy is an intent, and then you track it. We're going to create a part of on our website, visualworkplace.com, where we put various forms. We'll put our improvement time policy. You can get it in our books, but 
we'll, we'll find a way to get it on the website, a little um, little bucket where you can go for things related to the show. I've been thinking about this uh, since we started the show in February. I've been thinking about that we want to make these artifacts and these tools, these small kind of handouts and exercises available to you so you can get to them easily. And we'll put our improvement time tracking chart and some sample policies on visualworkplace.com. We have to find a place for it. We have a new webmaster, and uh, he's got to cleverly find a place for it, kind of resource section of the website. We'll figure it out. You just stay tuned. Visualworkplace.com. And uh, I really want it to be a a knowledge and know-how based site, uh, primarily sharing knowledge and sharing Visuality. So this release of an, of time is a major pivot point, a leverage point, where you get to see your culture when you put a benign intent and the habit is not there of how to use it. You're using improvement time policy first to make the statement that it matters enough for us to invest time, this change matters enough, in this case, doorway number one, operator-led visuality, for us to release time and intent, now let's make it work. And you work with your supervisors where there is the first line of resistance, white-hot resistance, you can just call it like that, white-hot resistance, and then the second line of resistance, which is disbelief, and a great deal of um, uh, not being convinced that you really mean it, which is on your operator value-add level, value-add associates. They will reflect back to you the nature of your culture. And there are some companies that have come up with innovative ways, if their lines are locked, as I said before, to deal with this. For example, a small company uh, just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, they said, you know what, Saturday you can come in, we'll give you time and a half, a small company of 40 people, time and a half over time, you do your improvement on Saturdays. We're not asking you to give up family time, but if you want to come over in the mornings, we'll be open for those, for three and a half, four hours, you can come and do your improvement then. Because they couldn't figure out a way to shut down during the course of the week. It was just too hard. Everybody was kind of an indispensable, non-duplicated positions. Another company, this is Trailmobile, under the leadership of Tom Wiseman, the great Tom Wiseman, he saw that people were not utilizing their improvement time and wanted to send a message. And he said every Friday, right after lunch, we're going to shut down for three and a half hours until you go home. We're going to work on improvement every Friday. And so the line, which was very locked at Trailmobile, a lot of uh, aligned processes, The whole enterprise had this kind of party, (laughs) improvement party, on Friday afternoons. It became very real and very, very beautiful, very robust. Big, big impact on everything. So use your improvement time policy to, uh, as a microscope or as a uh, telescope and find out what's going on in your culture. It's a requirement when we train, we do not begin the training. We usually come to the plant about two months before, sometimes three, to do a very long, this is for Dory number one, a very long checklist of 25 items that need to be kind of prepared. We call it the pre-launch checklist. Something else we'll get to you, but I think I want to talk about it first. And the improvement time policy has to be written and handed to us before we do the first training, because we know that people are going to be very excited about the training, very motivated, very stimulated, very interested, intrigued. We know this works, and we don't want to get into the funny position we used to get into, which is get everybody all excited, and then they don't have any time to improve, and it felt like a betrayal on both sides. We said no more. Improvement time policy, we will help you work it through, and you will have to work it through. 
but you need to write it first. And we'll use that as a first draft. Hmm? It's real. Time is real. Two kinds of time, production time, improvement time, they can't happen at the same time. You have to differentiate. That is the fifth startup requirement. Very, very important. It becomes so interesting when you take it on. And you take it on at the beginning. and It begins to groom the mentality of management to let them know this is their contribution. This is what they bring to the party. This is what they control and what they can release. This will both cost them, but it will also bring tremendous cultural and financial benefit. You work it out. The sixth tool is the laminated map. There's actually two focus tools in this. One is the laminated map, which asks and answers the question, where do we begin the implementation? How do we justify beginning in this area versus that area? How do we make that logical and rational? And then the second is the hit list, which is another focus tool, which allows us to use improvement time in a very kind of a sharp way, very focused way, targeted way. We know what we're doing. The hit list is our list of changes, solutions that we want to undertake, that we, meaning I, that I as an operator want to undertake. So let's talk about the laminated map first. And then next week when we meet, we'll kind of review these things. And I want to make a few more higher points. I'm probably going to talk about the pyramids and the inversion of the pyramids, which is basically what's happening when you're making an implementation. But I will also move on to whatever I don't cover today. These, this infrastructure, this understanding, this co-development and co-creation. I'm not sure I like that word co-creation, but it's like being shoulder to shoulder with the change, not passive at all, but very involved and engaged yourself as managers. Managers now under startup requirement number six, the focus tool, the laminated map, where do we begin? One of the early problems in any kind of systematic change happens when management discovers it has bitten off more than it can chew. That typically means that there was a decision made that the initiative would roll out fast and wide. I remember when Lockheed came to us, it was in, I met uh, Mark Swisher in March. It might have even been May. In Rochester, New York, he came to one of our seminars and he said, I've got to convert this mile-wide plant by December the 31st. My boss just told me, can you help me out? He was doing 5S. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how do we even put this into sentences? No organization can handle that amount of change. And (laughs) as importantly, no organization can attack or uh, embrace that amount of change unless they know not just what to change, but how to change. So the situation is addressed through this requirement we call, it's a tool, protocol, called the laminated map. You can use the laminated map on the local level, but I'm going to talk about it now on a strategic level where you're making a decision. Your map is a map of your facility, which gets divided into its natural work groupings, functions, or what you might call departments. You take a map, of your facility it doesn't need to have all the detail on it, but it does have to have a blueprint of the layout. You laminate it. You get your supervisors to sit around a table, big table. This should be a three-by-four map, big map. And they begin to map out the areas, the departments. And you have this one rule. Everything gets bounded, and we're looking for the extension of function, not just the department, but, for example, on a loading dock, it's not just the dock, but it's the pavement in front of the dock as well. That's what makes up the work function. 
And when you finish your map, we want every part of the plant, of the layout, of the site to belong to one department or another. This gets a little bit tricky for the aisles, which are kind of the arteries of the plant and connect the plant. But we sometimes give part of the hallways, as you do with the highways, this part of the highway is being maintained by the tool department, or this part of the highway is being maintained by the, um, the local Lions Club. The aisles can belong to facilities, can belong to maintenance, but they should not be overlooked in terms of visual language. But you map out the whole plant, and then what you do is you just put a blue dot. We like little Avery dots that are kind of see-through or easy to remove. You're putting it on laminate, so it should be pretty easy to remove. You put a blue dot in each area. Maybe you'll have 17 blue dots. Maybe you'll have 25. There's a blue dot for each designated area. And as with all of these tools, as with all of them, There's a developmental aspect to it besides just getting the tool up and working. Besides just writing an improvement time policy, you have to really think about your workforce and think about the implications of what you're doing. So you as an executive, when you're writing that improvement time policy, you yourself are considering your plant in a new way. And it's instructive. And it is developmental. And it's helping you grow. As an executive, when you do the laminated map and you have your supervisor sitting around this massive map, they are beginning to interface with each other and talking about where the boundaries of function is. Do you remember we talked about this when we touched upon smart placement in doorway number one, talking about the value of the third focus? You've got supervisors who don't talk that much to each other. They may talk about things, but not necessarily with each other, they are now focused, much as operators will be when they do smart placement, the two maps of smart placement. They are talking through the map to each other, and they're beginning to align. They're beginning to listen. They're beginning to tolerate, if not like, each other. They're beginning to see the other person's point of view in a fairly neutral format called the map of the facility. And then after you have the areas bounded, then you put a blue dot in the middle. You pass these blue dots out to everyone so everyone has a chance to do something, especially if you see people who are kind of sitting back and feeling pretty grumpy and disconnected and isolated. You say, hey, would you give me a hand on these blue dots? And they suddenly are participating. You, it may not look a lot like a lot to you to put down a blue dot in place. <laughs> But they know it's a lot for them because they said yes. They said yes. And so the map begins, it takes it, it, it takes form. And then you have your first big question, where do we begin? And to begin, there's a f- couple of ground rules in place that are very simple that You may volunteer someone else's area as a beginning point. Hey, let's talk in 2060 assembly. I'm sorry, let's begin in 2060 assembly. But if the supervisor says no, he or she does not have to explain themselves. They can just say no, and you take your dot. You you look for another place for your dot. The dot of change is the red dot. The red dot just means let's get started. We have a long way to go. Let's get started with the methodology of this change, the one that we have chosen way up at the top when we said choose a systematic methodology. We know what the methodology is. So there's a criteria that you can develop quite nicely for the laminated map to help you decide where to begin, but you have the norm in place that even if you've got a good rationale, if the supervisor doesn't want to, no is no. No, you can't do that. I've got three new machines coming in in the next four months. I can't. Or just plain old no. You put that ground rule in place. The other ground rule is the management champion who's in the room, she gets to say enough. She's in charge of the pace and the absorption of change. And she gets to say, that's all the change that I can bear. That's all the change that we can absorb. 
that's all the time, improvement time, that I can release, whatever her criteria, her set of criteria is. So I want to stop there on the laminated map and return to this in some detail because because of the clarity of the logic of the laminated map that allows you to initiate your first cycle, and I'll give you the criteria next week, or I'll at least give you the set of normal criteria, your choices around the criteria next week, and we'll walk through this in your mind's eye. But this is very real. You really need to decide where to begin and where not to begin, and you need to know your reasons. And there are more reasons if you have a group of trainers who are also learning the methodology during their first cycle of training. So let's pick up the this discussion of the infrastructure next week. We're at the right pace. This is what I thought was going to happen, that we will need one third, one, a third uh, session on this. I really enjoy sharing this with you. These are tools and protocols and behaviors and concepts and outcomes and principles and practices that we've been using for several decades very successfully, and we learn so much when we do. This whole methodology in front of and behind the scenes has gone through a maturing process of decades, and it is a joy for me to share this with you. I believe that listening is a good way of learning and that in your mind's eye, you can see these components working together, these seven startup requirements that we're walking through. They pertain so closely to your success in doorway one for your operator-led conversion that I would uh, be very, very pleased if you would take them seriously and at least consider them. So it's a joy to share this with you. Uh, I have had a great time talking to you about this. I'm going to sign off now. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'll see you next week. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm signing off now. Um, Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.